I want to just, there are enough um, flowers here in the front, I believe, for all of our moms to take two of them today. But let me just warn you that um, carnations are a little delicate. Um, And so as you pull them out, just be careful and uh, that you don't snap their heads off because, you know, that could happen. And so, and uh, literally when we picked them up yesterday, that's what she told us. She's like, hey, when you take them out, remember, uh, be careful because uh, you can snap their heads off. And I just thought, well, that's a... A really great way to say it. So I pass it on to you, and uh, she is more wise in the ways of flowers than me. So um, if you've got your Bible, uh, you're going to need it. We're going to go to, uh, I was just reading something in the Gospel of Mark, but we're going to go to James. James chapter 3, and so if you're using the Bible in front of you, it's on page 1020, page 1020, and we are in a series called Unoffendable. If you haven't been here, uh, this is the eighth week in that, and it's actually based on a book by the man by the name of Brant Hansen. Brant is a, um, he is a radio personality, he's a radio show host, and he's a believer, and he's written this book about how to live this unoffendable life. There are still a couple copies available in the back. If you want them, you can find them on Amazon. Uh, they're less than $10.00. With shipping, they're just right at like nine eighty eight a book, and so uh, we sell them for ten bucks here. But if you want to write the check for nine eighty eight, you can do that too. Um, but they're available in the back because when I read this book a few years, about a year ago, a little more than a year ago now, um, I realized this book is life transforming. This is a foundational principle in the kingdom of God, and going through it this time together as a church and as in small groups, uh, I have, am convinced. That if we get this concept, if we choose to be unoffendable and live this type of lifestyle, if we choose to lay down our right to be offended, our right to anger, and we do this in our relationships, we will see the kingdom. Okay, I, 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 I'm so excited for this week. Um, last week we talked about grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, and we talked about that grace of God that he gives us, and then our responsibility not only to receive his grace, but to pass it along And this week in one of our chapters, because this week we're reading chapters 22, 3, and 4 uh, in that book, Brant actually um, gives us another quote. And this quote is actually a response to one of his listeners. One of his listeners wrote him a letter, and they had a question for him. And his response is to a guy named Jacob, and this is what it is. Jesus, he fulfilled the law on our behalf. The work is done now. And it's not about what Jacob does or Brant does or fill in your name, but it's about what Jesus already did. Price paid and in full. There's nothing left. Some people won't like this. They're afraid if you believe this, if everyone believes this, everything will turn to chaos. They think once you realize how good God really is, you'll be out of control. They'll say, now grace is great, but, grace, but, beware of these people. There is no but. If you've put on Christ, there is no more condemnation. And as we grow in love for God, as we realize we are no longer under law, but led by the Spirit, good stuff flows from us. If we try to keep the law, good stuff doesn't flow from us. You know what flows from us? Frustration, anger, offense. His yoke is easy. His burden is light for those who understand this. 
It does not mean that living a life of love will always be easy. Forgiving others never is. It does not mean that Jesus' yoke, his teachings, excuse me, it does mean that Jesus' yoke, his teachings are not the complex, here's how you keep the law better teachings that so many rabbis offered. Love the Lord your God with all you have and love your neighbor. That sums it all up. That's how he wants us to live. This is amazing grace. And it, I want all of it I can get. How about you? And so today, we're going to talk about getting more grace. Because if grace is good, I want all that I can get. How many of you want all the good stuff you can get? I don't want bad stuff. I want good stuff. And grace is good stuff. As I already talked about today, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. The cross is about mercy. Okay? All of us in this room, we deserve death. We deserve the cross. That's what we deserved. But we don't have to know that. We don't have to experience it because of what Jesus did. He did it in our place. That's mercy. But we also get grace through the cross. What we don't deserve, sozo, salvation, healing, wholeness, deliverance, all of it, the grace of God, right standing with him, access to his throne today. Yes, we get heaven too when we pass away. But please do not misunderstand. Don't wait for heaven to access the throne room. You have the power, you have the access, (coughs) excuse me, You have the right, right now, to walk right into the very presence of God. And not because you kept all the rules, not because you're good enough, because of what he did for you. You can access that place. So this word grace is a word that maybe we don't understand fully, maybe we understand some, but we can grow in our understanding of it. It's literally the word gift. It's a gift. In fact, in other places in the Bible, the same Greek word again, this is the word charis, grace, means gift. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says, God has given each of you a grace from his great variety of spiritual graces. Use them well to serve one another. It, yeah, it says gift, but that's what it is. Grace is a gift. It's a gift from God. That same grace in Titus chapter 2 teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's a power. It's a gift. It's a gift that now I don't have to be ungodly. I can say no to it because I've been empowered by grace. Hebrews chapter 12 says that the grace of God is given to us to serve God acceptably. It's a gift. So when we come into the kingdom through grace, and then we start living a life that pleases God and honors God and mimics God in reality, it's not because of us. It's grace. That's what the Apostle Paul says. We read it last week in the book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I think, where he says, I am the least of all the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. But because of the grace of God, I am what I am. And the grace of God has enabled me to actually work harder than all the other apostles. But it's not me. It's the grace of God. And sometimes in the church, we forget that and we easily slip into anger and offense at people who aren't living up, who aren't measuring up to the standard that we are because we've forgotten it's by grace. 
And that's what we have to talk about today. The last few chapters of this book focus on humility and what humility is. And that's a word I don't think we understand fully because it's easy to misunderstand that word humility. C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian author, said it this way, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. In other words, humility is not, oh, I'm not worthy. Oh, don't clap for me. I mean, we had this, um, this older gentleman in the church I grew up in, and he always would sing a special. He would get up, and he, it, would, it would be an old hymn, and uh, they would play for him and if, in order to keep people from clapping because he didn't want people to clap for him. And so he, he would start the chorus again, and then he'd walk off the platform so that people couldn't clap for him. But if he finished a song, because if it didn't work out that he could do that, and you started clapping, he would always go like this. Well, that's not humility. That's not what we're talking about. When people come up to you and say, oh, you did so great today, you don't go, oh, no, I, I'm not worried. That's, that, it's not thinking you're a wretch, a worm. I mean, you got to know who you are. It is the grace of God. Thank you. The grace of God is at work in me, but I had to let it work. You understand? But it is thinking of ourselves less. Brandt writes it this way. Real humility isn't about putting yourself down or pretending your performance is substandard at everything you try. Real humility lies in self-forgetfulness. Few want to hear this, but it's true and it can be enormously helpful in your life. If you're constantly being hurt, offended, or anger, you should honestly evaluate your inflamed ego. Just going to let that sink in for just a second. Here's the thing. Pride and ego is easy to spot sometimes. I mean, we all, when we start talking about pride and ego, I mean, pictures come into our mind of people that we know that we easily spot pride or ego in their life. And we're like, yeah, that's that person. But it's probably in all of our lives more than we want to recognize. And one of the ways we recognize it is how we treat others. If we get easily irritated by proud people, we really should look at ourselves again closely. Brandt goes on, self-forgetfulness is not about mystically wishing myself into non-existence or pretending I'm meaningless. It's just the opposite. Self-forgetfulness is what happens when we're emotionally healthy. It's remembering that God is my defender. His opinion is what matters. Whatever my offenders are doing to me, I've done to others as well. And God has forgiven me. I simply must forgive in return and forfeit my right to anger. So it's not about clearing the mind or embracing nothingness. On the contrary, it's rather than clearing my mind, I have to remind myself of those larger truths. I have to consider others better than myself. Consider how the lilies of the field don't worry about themselves. Consider, remind myself, remember that ultimately there's something greater happening, a deeper work at work in the world, a deeper story at work in the world, and at work in me. Throughout these chapters, Brant warns us against evaluating ourselves by our performance, by our righteousness, either good or bad, 
gaining our identity from what we do, our ministry performance. It's easy to do that. If you start serving God in some way, it's easy to get your identity from that thing. And if it doesn't go well, your identity begins to suffer. Or when we get wounded or hurt, we actually isolate ourselves from people. I've, I've heard this all my life. Well, I, I, don't, I love Jesus. I just don't like the church because I've been wounded by the church. I've been wo- You've wounded people. You, yourself, everyone in this room, you have wounded people. I have wounded people. Even after coming to Christ, we've all done it. So why do we expect other people not to wound us? Pride, ego, selfishness. I know, I really need to move on. And this is the litmus test. This is how we understand what God has done for us, how we treat others. And for many of us, we we make excuses. Well, no, it's that person's fault. I only reacted that way because this person, they hurt me, they did this. And we, we fail to recognize that's what we've done. We miss it. And God's trying to show us that's that's who you are. And I offered you this amazing mercy and grace, and I just want you to give it out now. I, I know it, it's not fair. I know it's not what you think is, is the right way to handle it, but trust me, your creator, your good father. And it's supposed to be like warning lights on a dashboard. But many of us, we put electrical tape over that warning light and we don't want to see it. Until there's a breakdown and then we're like, oh, maybe I should have paid attention to that. And then people come, Pastor, I don't understand why my life is breaking down. There were always warning lights. Trust me, I know this because I live this. When I, when I read this book, I'm like, I don't like this book. <laughs> I don't like that concept. But I'm telling you, this is the kingdom. So James chapter 3, we're on page 1020 if you're using the Pew Bible. James chapter 3, we're skipping the first 12 verses where James warns about the danger of the tongue. But we'll, we'll come back and we'll reference it later. But we're going to start in verse 13. If you are wise and understand God's ways... Okay, those are two separate words, wise and understand. Okay, so you understand God's ways, and as a result of understanding his ways, you are wise. Prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. See, understanding is about information. Understanding is about intellect. It's about degrees. It's about getting the knowledge. It's about memorizing Bible verses. Wisdom is about living Bible verses. Wisdom is about applying the knowledge. Some people have a whole lot of understanding and very little wisdom. I mean, naturally and spiritually. I mean, there's a lot of people that they got a lot of degrees, but they ain't got no wisdom because they don't know how to apply the things they've learned in a classroom. Many of us are the same. We sit in church all these years and we memorize the Bible, but we don't actually apply them to our relationships and to our our situations. There's no wisdom. And this is right after he talks about taming the tongue. By accident? No, not by accident. Because he says the man who learns to control his tongue is perfect in every way. Perfect in every way. He's like, if you want to be perfect, learn to control what you say. Not because it's impossible, because you've been given grace to do it. You just have to apply what you've 
learn. I hope that unoffendable is not just information for us. I hope it produces an honorable life where we do good works. Because do not forget, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, let your good works be seen by people so they glorify your Father in heaven. We don't do good works before people so that, you know, they think of us as something special. So that we, you know, want to be seen by men. Jesus warned against that. Do not do your good works. Do not give in the offering. Don't come up here and go, everyone look. But the idea that we shouldn't take offering this way because other people will see what you're giving. Well, what's wrong with them seeing? It's not that they see you. It's what your motive is in giving. I mean, don't misunderstand the scripture. It's not that people shouldn't see your good works. It's that you shouldn't do those good works to feel better about yourself or to get them to think of you better. It's your motivation for the good works. How will they know about the amazing supernatural grace of God if they don't see it in our lives? If they don't watch us with the, everything within us, we deserve to give someone what they deserve and we withhold it. We offer mercy. We give them grace. They're going to be like, whoa, I don't understand that. Where do you get that from? See, we've made it all about, you know, just good things. We don't do these bad sins, these evil sins. But, man, if we started offering mercy and grace, if we actually started loving God with all our heart and loving our neighbor as ourself, that kind of stuff is going to transform the world. Good works are necessary and they are possible, especially in how we relate to others. Remember how Jesus often said these two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, love God, love your neighbor? It's interesting that in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, we're having a little issue there. The Apostle Paul actually says this, for the whole law can be summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Literally, love your neighbor who is like yourself. That's what that means. How can the whole, what, what about loving God? If you get this one, it's because you got the other one. Because it's easy for us to think we got the other one, but the reality that we got the other one is this one. So that's why Paul comes along now after the Gospels and says, it's all summed up in this. Love your neighbor who is like yourself. So James is telling us humility comes from wisdom. Wisdom, the application of our knowledge. So verse 14, James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. These things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic? Selfishness is demonic? Yeah. The first commandment of the satanic Bible, do what thou wilt. Selfishness. Because when you act selfishly, do you know what you do? You empower the kingdom of darkness. That's what we do. See, you have not been given grace to just live however you want so that, you know, you, you don't have to worry. It's, it's all taken care of. That's truth. But if we continue to sow to the flesh, what do we reap? Destruction. In fact, when we continue to act ungodly, do you know what we do? In our world, we empower the kingdom of darkness. So if we continue to act selfishly, 
we empower darkness, even though we want light. That's what James is saying. These things are demonic. Don't don't have any part of them. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, you will find disorder and every evil of every kind. Evil of every kind. How is that even? Out of jealousy and selfishness? I mean, I, I look at this and I think, man, maybe he's just overreacting. Could holding on to offense and could offenses and anger and selfishness actually be empowering the spirit of darkness in our church, in our family, in our community? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it, I mean, yeah, I'm all for declaring truth and speaking truth, but if we're not living truth, it's like we're, we're declaring and then we're living. And so it's like one step forward, one step back, one step forward, one step back, one step forward. Not making any spiritual progress. And you've been given grace to actually declare truth and then follow it up with action. So verse 17. The wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving. Gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism. It is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. You see how God's wisdom relates to other people? Is James only talking about the well-behaved, deserving people? Or is he talking about all people? All people. Because even the unrighteous do it to the well-behaved, good people. But the righteous should do it to all people. And we've been given this supernatural grace to be gentle at all times. To offer no favoritism. I mean, it's human nature at least fallen human nature, to want to be favorites, to want to, you know, people that are good to me, I, I, want, to, I want them to be blessed because they're good to me. People that aren't good to me, I don't really want them to be blessed, but the grace of God in me wants them blessed because that's the condition I was in and God blessed me. And when I fully understand that, I cannot withhold it from others. It is willing to yield to others. It doesn't always yield to others. This is where we, we get kind of off in our world. Where, you know, we always want to yield to others. No. If they're doing wrong and me yielding to them empowers darkness, I'm not going to yield. But I will be gentle at all times. I will still honor even when I cannot yield and there, is some, there are some churches and there's some gospels that tell us we just got to yield to everybody all the time. No, I got to be willing to yield, but I also have to stand for righteousness. And at the same time, be gentle at all times. How many of you are starting to think, this is hard? Aren't you glad for grace? <laughs> this is what we need. So chapter 4, because remember, we put in the chapters. James is writing a letter, and he didn't like go, okay, chapter 4 of my letter. <laughs> okay, We added those to make it easier for us to, when we're here to find stuff. He says, next, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Why are they quarreling and fighting? 
Because they're people. <laughs> I mean, I, I love it when people are like, oh, I don't go to that church anymore. There's all kinds of quarreling and fighting. As if there's a church where there's no quarreling and fighting. I mean, we strive for it, absolutely. But here's the thing. We're, it's going to happen. And it's not that it's happening. It's how we're dealing with it. And most, some of us deal with it by walking away. Well, that's not how we deal with it. Some of us deal with it by not doing anything. That's not how we deal with it. There's prescriptions in the scripture for how to deal with these things. But we reason, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to deal with it that way. Oh, I wouldn't do any good to do it that way. Yes, we know more than the supreme being who gave us instruction. Think about that for a second. He's told us how to do this, and we think we know better because of our experience. So our fights and quarrels, where do they come from? The evil desires at war within you. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. It starts with asking God. Why is that? Let's see what we can do. It starts with asking God because he's our source. He's our ultimate source. I don't get what I need from my spouse. I don't get what I need from my kids. I don't get what I need from my church body. I don't get what I need from anyone except him. Ultimately, he's my source. That doesn't mean I can't have a conversation with my wife and say, hey, when we talk, I, I prefer this. And, you know, this, uh, that's called communication. That's called conflict resolution. I teach it when we do premarital counseling. It doesn't mean I can't ask for it, but it means I don't have to live dependent on it. It's not what you do. I get it from him. That's what unoffendable is all about. That's what keep your love on is all about. Remember what keep your love on? We haven't moved on from keep your love on. We're still supposed to be applying that to our lives. We get what we need from God, so we ask him. But then James goes on in verse 3. When we do ask God, we don't get it because the motives are wrong. We want only what will give us pleasure. Make us feel good. Because pleasure makes it sound like, oh, that's sinful. I don't want pleasure. That's sinful stuff. No, we want what makes us feel good. I only pray about what makes me feel good. I only want God to do the things that make my life easier, better. You know, who, God, I know I want your glory to be revealed over all the earth. I want your kingdom to come. But ultimately, I want my life easy. So let's put that at the top of the list. Easy life for me. And then, you know, if you can get your glory in there, I'll take that too. That's not how we've been taught to pray. We need to make sure that we're trusting God to provide for us, fight for us, work for us. And the source, he says, of our offense, our fights, our quarrels, our anger, is really about our selfishness. And it should be about the glory of God and the expansion of his kingdom on the earth. So then verse 5, and this is the most difficult verse in the entire book to translate. Translators have no idea exactly what verse 5 means. The New Living Translation is what I'm reading from today. It says this, verse 5. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? In other words, 
you know, you're living this way. The scriptures tell you to live another way. Are you not, li- are you not paying attention? That's what James is saying. They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. So in other words, God has put a spirit in us that yearns jealously for him. But some translators, other passages of the Bible, say that God has given us a spirit, a human spirit, and that spirit tends to go towards envy and jealousy. So it could mean either one. Both of those are true statements. Okay, so we're not exactly sure what James means in verse 5, but what we are sure of is verse 6. He gives grace generously. In other words, if your human spirit, which tends to go towards envy and selfishness and jealousy, God has given you grace to overcome it. Generous grace, more than enough grace, you can overcome everything. If he's given you a spirit that longs to be just like him, he's given you enough grace for that too. So ultimately, whatever James means in verse 5, we have the grace we need in verse 6. If God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If we humble ourselves before him. He opposes or battles against the pride, the proud. But he gives generous, abundant, excessive grace to those who are Humble. Pride, no grace, no power, no help, tired, angry, frustrated, offended, exhausted. That's pride. Grace, humble, power, ability, strength, hope, peace, joy, grace. Humility is really recognizing who I was, what he did, now what I do to others. In essence, that's humility. Modeled for us by none other than Jesus himself. He was the best model of it. So verse 7, James chapter 4, we're still there. So, in, in light of that, it only makes sense to say verse 7. So, humble yourselves before God. I mean, this is the key to getting more grace. Do it. Resist the devil. Resist the demonic. Resist selfishness. Resist it. And he will flee from you. Come close to God. And God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world or your selfish human desires. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Verse 11. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, you are criticizing and judging God's law. It's funny, we started this by talking about the tongue, and now we end it by talking about criticism. Resist the devil by the grace of God, so that we come out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. Paul writes about it in Colossians chapter 1. Paul says to the church, we continuously ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding. Okay, you got to understand it, and then wisdom is applying it. Wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. 
bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't say he will rescue us from the dominion of darkness. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. So we no longer have to act like the kingdom of darkness. We act like the kingdom of light. And James is saying, come close to God. How many of you know, <clears throat> when you do something you know you're not supposed to do, the last thing you feel like doing is coming close to God. You're like, I don't want to go close to God right now. I don't deserve to go close to God. And guess where the very place you need to go is? Close to God. Because you need the grace to overcome that. The humility to recognize, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have acted that way. Wasn't their fault I acted that way. Wasn't their fault I said that. Wasn't their fault... I did it. I chose it. I don't want to choose it. I don't want to empower darkness. I want to overcome evil with good. I don't want to return evil for evil. That empowers darkness. I want there to be light in my family. I want there to be light in my business. I want there to be light in my school. I want there to be light in my city. I want there to be light. So I'm going to choose an unoffendable life because that brings light. I believe it. The tongue, quarrels, and criticizing others. Are we empowering the kingdom of darkness or empowering the kingdom of light? Either way, if we are empowering the kingdom of light, it's by the grace God gives us. And where do we get grace? Humbly asking for it. When Jesus taught us to pray... How many of you know the Lord's Prayer that he taught us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. Forgive us. I mean, did you ever notice that the Lord's Prayer is a plural prayer? Why didn't Jesus pray a singular prayer? My Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Forgive me. Give me my daily bread. Do you see how the kingdom of God is tied to other people? It's not about me and Jesus, not about me and my, it's about us, it's about the kingdom, it's about the lost, it's all about that. We, make, we tend to make it about us, that's again selfishness, and so Jesus actually taught us a prayer that goes against selfishness, and in his prayer, I, I said it, but I, I want you to look at those phrases, hallowed be the name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it's in heaven. If you literally take that phrase, that prayer apart, each of those three phrases are supposed to go with the last phrase. So literally what's being said here is, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not, you know, just your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's actually structured in a way that that should be with each of those. It's understood that way. So if you were in the audience when Jesus was speaking, that's how you would have heard it. Okay? We don't hear it that way 
in English all the time because that's not how it's written for us and we don't understand that. His readers would have understand it. Jesus is saying, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. I was always taught that meant that's our, our praising part of God, our prayer. So when we pray, we should be like, God, your name is so holy and your name is so set apart and it's, it's, so, it's so great. And that's really not what that means. Literally, it's a request for God's name to be hallowed, sanctified, set apart on the earth just as it is in heaven. Now, it is a request for God to act. God, act, make your name holy, set apart on the earth. But it's not just that. It's a request for grace. It's a request for us to say, God, help us to make your name set apart, sanctified, and holy. It's not a request for God to show up. It's not a, a request for God to reveal himself or come down. He already did. He already came down. And he put his spirit in us so that we could now do the good works and glorify our Father in heaven so that his name would be hallowed. Remember just a few weeks ago we looked at Romans chapter 2? And the Apostle Paul says to the church, the, the name of God is being, being condemned. The name of God is being put down all around the world because you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're telling people to live a certain way, but you're living the way you're telling them not to live. And God's name is being profaned because of that. You've been given grace to live different so that God's name is not profaned. God's name is not profaned by gay pride parades. It's profaned by the church that's telling people, don't be gay, but living offendable. That's how his name is being profaned. And the way they will know is when we start sanctifying and setting apart his name. The kingdom comes. See, we're empowering darkness, but preaching light. And wondering why people aren't getting it. Because they've been blinded by the God of this age. And the only way to get those blinders off is for the kingdom of light to come. And it comes not just through our declarations, not just through our prayers, but through our obedient actions. And so this prayer literally should be prayed this way. Our Father in heaven, may we live our lives in such submitted obedience to you that your name is set apart on earth as it is in its highest heaven. That changes everything. We're not just saying, God, do your thing. God, enable us to do your thing. Submit to God. Especially in regards to our treatment of others. It's littered throughout the scriptures. I'm going to close with this thought. One of the questions, that's not the thought. I refuse to be frustrated by that. Join me. One of the questions I've been wrestling with, and other people have, in fact, I just had someone yesterday ask me the question, why was the kingdom of God so powerful with Jesus? I mean, why was it so powerful with him and not so much with us? And of course, for many, the obvious answer tends to be, well, he was God. I don't think so. 
Because the scripture clearly says that he laid aside his rights and privileges as God and he came as man. I believe he referred to himself most as the son of man because he wanted to emphasize that he was human. I believe the kingdom of God was so powerful with Jesus because he totally submitted himself to the Father. Didn't have to. He was God. But he submitted himself. He humbled himself, the Bible says, even to the point of being obedient to death on a cross. Can I tell you, he became obedient to death on the cross, not the day of his crucifixion. He became obedient to the cross the moment he stepped out of heaven. He knew what he came for. He humbled himself. If, if you look at the level of submission and humility required for God himself to become a human and take our punishment for us, that's huge. Why was the kingdom so powerful with him? Humility, submission. How can it be powerful with us? Humility and submission. Exactly what James is saying. And if you consider the fact that for 30 years of his life, Jesus submitted himself to earthly parents. Huh? Why did he do that? I believe it was to build the character in his life, the submission, the humility. Then he goes into the period of 40 days of fasting, again, embracing weakness, embracing humility. If we want to live like Jesus, we better start living like Jesus, embracing humility, embracing submission, embracing unoffendable. That's literally the essence of this. This is what this book is all about. It's about the kingdom of God coming in power. It's about lives being transformed. Here's the thing. I don't want sinners in the world to stay in their sin and end up in hell deceived. I want the kingdom of God to come in power. But it doesn't come the way we've been trying. It comes through submission, humility, obedience, mercy, grace. That's how it comes. The purpose of being unoffendable is bringing the kingdom. Granted, God is king and he sets the rules and we obey him just because he said so. But do not forget he is a good father. So if he tells you to do good to those who hate you, there's a reason. There's a purpose. He wants the kingdom in your life greater. He wants the kingdom in the life of the person who hurt you. And the way to bring that about is to do good to them. To overcome evil with good. Remember how Jesus endured the cross? For the joy set before him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So how do we endure mistreatment? Same way. Remember that he's a good father. That's the purpose of this book. It's so profound and so powerful. And I, I feel like a kid on Christmas. Because I feel like if we as a church would start getting this and modeling this in this city, we could literally change the city. 
We could. We could change everything. But I'm asking you to do one of the hardest things that anyone has ever asked anyone to do. <laughs> Live like Jesus. But there's empowerment to do it. And there's no condemnation when we mess up. Unless we make excuses for that or justify that. Then there is condemnation. If we're going to justify our behavior, there's no grace for that. That's pride. But if we come in humility, there is great grace. There is grace to overcome any boss, any child, any spouse, any president, any congressman, any governor, anybody, any police officer, any teacher, any coach, any student, any friend, any enemy. There is grace to overcome. There is. I've seen it. I'll never have to know it, and yet I know it. Make sense? Let's stand. Here's how we're going to close today. I believe in the supernatural grace of God being poured out into our lives. I don't think this is just a message that now you just need to go and do your best. I believe we actually need to receive grace from God to do this. We need to ask for it and receive it. And so we're going to close this way. It's way early. I am good. <laughs> just the grace of God in me. I'm going to ask you, if you say, I want that life. I want the unoffendable life. Full disclosure, hardest thing you've ever done, you have to do good to those who hate you. You have to love your enemies. You have to pray for those who persecute you. You have to offer mercy to people who don't deserve it. You have to give grace where it's not deserved either because it's the kindness of God that opens us to repentance. So that's what you're accepting, that lifestyle. And if you want the grace to do it, I'm going to invite you to the front because I want you to come. I want you to come to receive it. I'm going to pray a short prayer over you, ask you to ask God to put it in our lives, and then we're going to dismiss you and we'll get you out of here before 11.30. So if that's you, you say, I want it. That's the lifestyle I want. Come. Say, I want that. I want that lifestyle. I want to live unoffendable. I want to lay down the right to anger. I want to lay down the right to offense. I want it. I want that life. I want to change the world. I want you to look around right now. More than enough to change a city. More than enough to change a city. More than enough. If you want to receive it, posture to receive. Put your hands out to say, God, I need it. God, we need grace. We need grace. God, we would be remiss to start with anything, but thank you. Thank you that you've never treated us as our sins deserve. Thank you that you are slow to anger, 
and abounding in love. Thank you for the mercy and the grace that you gave us at the cross. God, we know full well what we have done to you. And there is no one in our lives today that has ever treated us any worse than we have treated you. And now we need the grace to be your sons and daughters. Thank you for bringing us into the kingdom of the son that you love. Give us grace today to advance your kingdom, to set your name apart in every workplace, in every school, in every neighborhood, in every family, in this body, in this city, in this state, in this region, and in this nation. Give us the grace we need today in every relationship, in every circumstance, and in every situation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace has come. It's there. Now when you go out, live it. Live it. Don't tell yourself you don't have it. You have it. Live it. Live it. If you still need prayer for something, if you haven't been prayed for yet, our prayer team is always here. But if you're done, you're ready to go into the battlefield, feel free to be dismissed. But uh, I just want you to know our prayer team is always here in the front for you. God bless you as you go today. Go be unoffendable.